My name's Charlie. Um, hello, Rosie and everyone. Um, I used to come to this church, actually got saved in this church. Um, it's fantastic to be back. I love this place. I uh, love the people that are here. Um, if you don't know me, um, a bit of my background is I used to be the local chaplain at Dacobin High School uh, for a number of years. Um, from there, I moved on into a youth pastor role over in Redcliffe. Um, at the moment, now I'm studying social work at QUT, I'm part of a church plant down in Kenmore, um, and I work um, at a hospital in Brisbane, which I can't say the name of for political reasons. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a hectic life. My life is kind of all over the place. Um, I will say about work, you probably should know this, it's relevant. Um, I work with young people who are addicted to substances, and so my role is to kind of help them in that, uh, in that, that kind of journey of, uh, of coming off them. And, that, and I think that kind of reflects, I guess, my heart and my passion for things, and so I kind of bring that lens um, to, to everything I do, and I'm just trying to be upfront about, I guess, my own biases, because we all have them, and you know, mine are, are towards a sort of a social justice bent. So, um, yeah, I just want you to know that before, I, uh, before we get into things. Um, yeah, so I thought I'd start off tonight uh, the way all good theological, exegetical sermons should start, and that's with a video about dogs. Cool. Um, hands up if you like dogs. Is there any dog lovers here? Oh, this is a good church. Praise Jesus. Um, dogs are great. But those dogs, those big dogs, they think they're lap dogs and they're, they're just a little bit confused. I mean, they're beautiful little creatures, but they're, they've kind of like, they're just, a bit, they're just a bit off. They're a little bit deceived. Their purpose is a little bit misplaced. Big dogs like that, they don't make the best cuddling things. I don't know if you've been a little child and ever got swamped by a, by a big dog. It's not, not the greatest experience ever. All you mums out there will know you don't want your dog getting... Not your dog. You don't want your child getting, uh, getting hit by a big dog. Um, the, uh, but we, we, sometimes, we sometimes get a, bit, uh, a, bit, a little, bit, little bit deceived sometimes, a little bit off track, kind of lose our, our purpose a bit. And when that happens, um, yeah, sometimes we can get a bit stuck. Does anyone have a, a Corolla here? Is there any Corolla drivers, Toyota Corolla drivers? Are you the only Corolla person in the whole room? I'm not even sure if I am. I don't care about cars. All right, okay. Well, you, you actually do, Mark, because I've got a, the same car as you. Anyway, my Corolla, it's a, good, <laughs> it's a great little car, but it is not designed to be driven in the sand up at Bribie. And if I took that car and tried to drive it in the sand up at Bribie, I would get stuck. It is not designed for that. So just a hot tip for everyone, if you have a sedan, don't take it in the sand. You'll get stuck. It's not going to go well. Um, the people of God in the Old Testament have had this problem as well. Um, they have, at times, when you read the Old Testament, lost their way. They have um, forgotten their purpose. And when they, when they did that, their focus turned to things like um, self-preservation, turned to things like greed, turned to idolatry, all these kinds of things. And one of, one of their biggest problems that they went to was they, um, they looked to other nations for security. Um, they, they, wanted to be, they wanted to be in cahoots with the, with the superpower of the day. They wanted to be accepted. They wanted to be with the wealthy people. Um, and it just got them into all kinds of trouble. The, the church at times 
and, and us as Christians, sometimes we've done that as well. Sometimes we lose our purpose. Sometimes we lose our way. Sometimes we get a bit distracted. And sometimes we buy into the ideologies and the idols of our day. The same kinds of things that the people in the Old Testament did. Things like self-preservation and greed and idolatry. And we're not, we're not worshipping, uh, I guess, gods like they did in the Old Testament. We're not going to like Baal temples and sacrificing our children on the altar and things like they did in the Old Testament, some of the nations around Israel. We're not doing that. But, but, but our, our false gods, they're, they're, they're a little bit different. They're a lot more subtle. Um, but they're definitely there, um, and so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at we're gonna look at that a little bit tonight. Um, but what we're gonna focus on is uh, is a passage in the Gospel of Luke. So we'll go there in a sec. Um, but before we get there, I just want to say something about about our society and uh, some of those subtle, I guess, idols that we might that we might turn to that. That, that shape us and guide us and those kinds of things. This analysis that I'm about to, just, I guess, highlight, this critique of society, comes from people like Mark Sayers, Michael Frost, uh, Walter Brueggemann, um, and a couple of others, those kind of guys. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but just in case you're interested, you can read about them. We'll go to those people. But um, I think three of the biggest, most toxic um, idols or ideologies or um, things that have shaped us that aren't necessarily Christian in this society um, is consumerism, capitalism, and liberalism. And those three kind of ideologies, they're embedded in everything we do. Um, they make our society um, about gaining wealth, about buying and selling everything. Um, they make everything a competition between individuals, and they push to the margins the idea of things like the common good. Um, and that's not to say that any other particular ideologies are any better, they're just as flawed, but those are the ones that we live in, we're in a Western society, that's our context, that's what we're shaped by, um, and, and, and those are the things that, uh, that are teaching us that we don't even realise, um, I guess have made us, you know, how we are today here in the West. So what we're going to do now is we're going to have a look at this passage in Luke and hear what Jesus has to say. And we're going to see how it aligns with, um, I guess, our society and how it's going um, and kind of compare it to what, what Jesus is on about. And then we'll reflect, as, our, as individuals, we'll, we'll kind of reflect into that a bit. All right, so I'm going to pray. And while I'm doing that, you can pray with me. And then we can open up to Luke chapter 4. All right. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that you are good. And I thank you that you're our king. And I thank you that you have come to set us free, that you've come to restore us in relationship to the Father, that you come to, took, to take our place and that you came to pay the price for our sins, Lord, um, when you died on the cross. And so, Father, I just ask that you would help us to, uh, to hear from you tonight as we explore the scriptures, as we explore Luke and what you have to say to us through that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. So if you have a Bible, 
You want to open up to that. I don't have a PowerPoint tonight. I'm really sorry. I was going to have one, but it didn't happen. So, and I actually, I actually get, dis- I actually get distracted by them. So I, I don't know if anyone else gets distracted by them, but yeah. So there's no PowerPoint, except for my cool video about dogs. But we're done on that. All right. So from verse 17. Actually, we'll go from verse 16. He, meaning Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the he stood up to read the scroll of Isaiah as it was handed to him. Unfolding it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fasted on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this is a really, uh, it's a really interesting passage. It's, it's pretty small, but it's actually really significant. Um, it's the, fir- it's the first public thing that, it's one of the first public things that Jesus does after he gets baptised. So he gets baptised, um, heaven opens up and the Father says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Holy Spirit descends on him. And then he goes out into the wilderness and he gets tempted by Satan. He's out there for 40 days. And then it, Scripture says he comes back in power and he started proclaiming his message of the kingdom. And then, boom, we go straight into this story. A lot, of, a lot of commentators sort of see this passage as um, almost like Jesus' mission statement. It's one of the first uh, times that he gets up and declares who he is and, and what he's on about. But to kind of understand this a bit, we need to understand a little bit more about Luke, um, the book of Luke and the person of Luke and a little bit more about the context. Um, so the guy who wrote it is thought to be a guy named Luke who probably was a doctor he seems to be a companion of Paul, someone who had a good understanding of the Old Testament, um, was a Gentile, so he, he didn't grow up as a Jew, but he was a God-fearer and then became a Christian after, after Pentecost and that kind of stuff. Um, it was written to people, the, the book was most likely written to people who were um, either people who, who were Jewish or people who were uh, just God-fearers, which they kind of like weren't fully Jewish, but they weren't Christians yet. And then also it was written to Christians. But it also, I guess it also kind of is trying to be a bit of a, I guess, a, an evangelism tool as well. So that's kind of the kind of people who it was, uh, it was written to. And it's, it's also important to note that the people who this was written to, they lived under oppression. So Rome was in power of the day. Um, they lived military rule. Um, the Israelites didn't have a lot of power, didn't have a lot of sway. Um, life was pretty rough for your average person, especially where Jesus was from in Nazareth or Galilee, that kind of area. It wasn't a rich area, it was pretty poor. Um, so life, life was pretty tough. And there was also there was a lot of political pressure um, in, this, in this kind of period to worship the, the ruler of Rome as a god. Um, there, was, yeah, there was this pressure to... Uh, to, to walk around and declare that Caesar is Lord, and that, and and to them that that was a way of saying that you know we we put Caesar we put Caesar the you know the the emperor 
um, above all things. And so if, if you could imagine, I can't imagine doing that to, you know, at the political leaders of our time, any of them, you know, declaring them, you know, Lord above all things, you know, that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary thought. But that, that was the pressure that, um, that these, people, these people were under. So it was difficult. There was this cultural pull to, for them to water down their faith. There was this cultural pull towards idolatry, this cultural pull um, away from being faithful um, to God. So Luke's purpose, what he's sort of trying to say, um, the main thrust of what he's trying to do is strengthen these Christians who are in this, in this position, in this tough position where they're, where they're oppressed, where they're living in poverty, where there's a massive cultural pull for them to not be faithful to God. Um, Paul's uh, Luke, sorry. Luke's writing to encourage them, to, to build their faith, to centre them on the gospel, to centre them on Jesus, um, and to help them understand what Jesus' coming means for their identity and, and their security. So we've got a few things in common with this audience and a few things that, that aren't in common. So I guess like the audience of this, that, who this letter is addressed to, we're not in the majority anymore in society. Um, Christians are more and more and more becoming a minority in society. And that's actually, that's neither good nor bad. Um, that's a whole other discussion, but we'll just leave that there. Um, also, we're not, we, we're not operating from a position of power anymore. For a long time in, in history, the church had a lot of wealth, had a lot of control, they, they could influence kings, countries, wars, all these kinds of things. But that's, that's not the case. And that wasn't the case for the early Christians. Certainly wasn't the case for Jesus um, in the first few centuries of the church. So we're, 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 we're kind of coming a, a lot more like uh, the situation that they were in. Um, where we're different, though, is at least in Australia, we, we're, we're, we're not really living in poverty. I mean, there are people in Australia who... Um, are certainly not as well off as others in Australia. There's certainly people in Australia who struggle financially. Um, I come from a background like that. Um, but comparatively to the rest of the world, Australians have it like, relatively good. We've got things like universal healthcare, free education. We have a safety net with welfare, those kinds of things. So like, we're doing okay. So that's where we're a bit different from the readers of this thing. And that'll become important a bit later on. All right, so let's, that's kind of the context. Um, so let's get into this text and let's uh, kind of see where, where we go. So I guess the first thing I want, want to point out with this passage is um, Jesus is reading from Isaiah. So he, he, he's, it was custom back in his day on the Sabbath. They'd get up and they'd read from the Old Testament. So Jesus gets up. And he's, uh, he's reading from this passage. And it's a bit funny because often in the New Testament, when they, when they quote the Old Testament, they just quote little tiny bits. And it feels like really out of context. And sometimes you can be like, that that's just doesn't seem like it fits right. But they're actually doing something a little bit different. They quote it a little bit differently to the way we do. Um, and there's a, there's a theologian guy, his name's Don Carson. He sort of highlights this really well in his, um, some of his books. That when people in the New Testament are quoting the Old Testament, they're actually sort of like pointing you to the whole section. 
So, so when, when Jesus reads out these two verses, he's kind of, he's, the people who are listening to him, they're actually thinking of like the whole chapter. So like Isaiah, the whole of Isaiah 61, that's where this sort of comes from. So it's important to know that because um, it, just, it just helps you get a bit more of an idea um, of what the listeners would have, would have been thinking when Jesus sort of read this, uh, read this passage out in Isaiah. And, the, and this is what they would have been thinking. I'm reading into it now. Sorry, I'm going to get going. Okay. Um, <laughs> they would have been thinking he's claiming to be the Messiah. In Isaiah 61, it's very clear the person who's talking is the Messiah. So Old Testament people, Jewish people would have heard him got up and, and they would have been like, he's claiming that he's the Messiah. He's claiming he's the one God's going to send to fix everything to restore God's kingdom, to kick out the Romans. That's what they would have been thinking. And so when, when, they, when they reject Jesus a little bit later on, it's, it's to no surprise because he's making a pretty bold claim. But the other thing he's doing when he reads from Isaiah is he's saying that this, this, this bit in Isaiah, this is starting now with me. This is, I'm that guy. This, this is starting now with me. And he's also painting a picture. He's, he's giving us a vision of hope. He's giving us a vision of what God's kingdom, what God's rule and reign looks like. So Jesus is getting up. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. He's getting up and he's saying, this is all starting now. And he's getting up and he's saying, this is what God's kingdom on earth looks like. And then he goes on. So let's, so let's unpack that. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. What, is, what does God's kingdom look like? So it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So there's these, there's these, there's these few things that are saying when God's kingdom comes... Life for people on the margins of society, life for people who are, are poor, uh, are oppressed, uh, not as physically healthy as, as the rest of society, life's going to get much better for them. It's going to be good news for them. They're going to be like cheering because things are going to change. Their lives are going to change. It's going to be different. And, to, and, and, I, and I, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, oh, why, why is that? Like, why... Like, why is life going to get better for them? What, what's, what's going on so that, that things are going to change for them? Well, for the people who were poor, who were oppressed, who were captive, who were blind in Jesus' day, um, they had very little access to any wealth at all. Um, they were socially isolated. They had no say in, their, in, their, in the politics of the day. They couldn't influence their government. Um, and no one really cared about them because there was this dynamic that went on in the Old Testament and the New Testament times where if you were poor, you were, you were put into one of two groups, either deserving poor or undeserving poor. So if you're in the deserving poor group, people looked at you and they were like, oh, they're poor because something happened to them and it's not their fault that they're poor. So we'll take pity on them and throw a few coins at them and that kind of thing. So that's slightly better than the other group, but it's still not great. 
The other group of people, the undeserving poor, um, things are really hard for them because society viewed them as a group of people who had caused their own poverty. And so because of that, uh, the Jews and a lot of other societies sort of looked at them and, and kind of thought, well, you made bad decisions and you got yourself into that, so tough luck, we're not going to show you any, any help or any grace. And so that's, that's probably the group that Jesus is more speaking to when he says good news for the poor than any other. It's the, it's the group of people who are in a really hard situation and made some, they made some bad choices and that's ended them up in that kind of, that kind of place. And so, so, so life's going to change for them. Something's going something's to change for them. And when we, when we start to look at some of Jesus' other teachings, what the early church did, how they operated, some of Paul's writings, some of the, um, the future prophetic um, passages in both the Old and New Testament, we start to get this picture that when the more God's kingdom starts to come on earth, the better these people's lives get. The more um, poverty and oppression and injustice is eradicated. So when, when you, if you think of passages like the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, um, the Good Samaritan, uh, he helps an undeserving person who's, who's beat up on the side of the road. And the reason he's undeserving is because he's a Jew and he gets helped by a Samaritan and they hate each other and no Samaritan would think that a Jew was, uh, was worth helping and vice versa. Philippians 2, Paul talks about if we, have, if we get anything from Christ, he talks about think of others more than you think of yourself. In Isaiah 65 and in Revelation 21 and 22, there's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth and it paints a number of things, but suffering's gone, death's gone, pain's gone, poverty's gone, um, injustice is gone and it's replaced by life and healing and abundance. Um, it's, this, it's, this, it's almost this utopian like idea or vision that you know, life is going to get really, really good for everyone, but especially those who live on the margins. In Acts, the, the, the early church, I, I think they began really trying to live this out, and I think that they, they tried to live this out really well. In Acts chapter 4, um, you, you might remember that the early community, they, they sold everything they had, and they just shared it with each other. No one was in need. They helped the poor. Um, a few generations after that, Roman, Roman leaders were writing letters to each other, and they were, they were, they were talking about these Christians. They're like, what do we do with these Christians? They're weird. They, they're really good people, and they worship some weird deity, and then they help the poor people, and they look after orphans, and they didn't know what to do with them. Eventually, they started crucifying them, but, you know, it's a bit weird. Um, and then, and then Jesus talks to the rich young ruler. So he comes to Jesus and he's sort of like, I meet all the law. I'm a righteous person. What have I got to do? And Jesus says to him, sell everything and give it to the poor. So it's this, this, this theme of the situation of the poor changing and um, poverty being eradicated is, a, is one that flows through all of the Bible. Now, the last thing in this little uh, bit that Jesus read from Isaiah that's really important is 
Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, when I looked at that, I was like, what's that? What's the year of the Lord's favour? Isn't I wonder, like, what, is that like, when, when's that? Like 2021? Like, I want that year. Like, what, what is that? But it's actually referring to this thing called the year of Jubilee, which comes from Leviticus 25. Hands up if you've read Leviticus. Oh, wow. Well done. I haven't met many people who've read Leviticus, so that's awesome. It's a hard book to read. Chapter 25 talks about this, this year of Jubilee, this year of the Lord's favour. And so basically what it was about was that God's people were to have the whole nation was to, anyone who was a slave was to be set free. So any money that they owed, any debts that they have were cancelled. Any land that people had sold to get out of debt or slavery was to be returned to the traditional owners. The whole nation was to live a really simple life, not store up any treasure, and, uh, and they were to, to live off what God had provided them the previous year. So, they, so, so you get these three kind of principles coming out of the year of Jubilee. Radical faith, trusting God's provision, even though it, you, you're scared and you don't think there's going to have enough. Um, debt's cancelled across the land and a massive redistribution of wealth, like on a scale that like, is, is actually really hard to imagine. And commentators don't think this actually ever happened. Like this was a clear command. They were supposed to do this every 50 years. Um, but there's no evidence that Israel ever went ahead with it. And you can understand, like, from a human level, why. Like, people like wealth. People like money. People don't want to give their money away. Like, that's hard. And, and Israel never did it. Um, they were supposed to. So when Jesus says he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, he's talking about the year of Jubilee. So it's a bit radical. It's a bit out there. What I noticed isn't mentioned specifically is that Jesus didn't talk about sins or sins being forgiven. So a core tenet of the Christian faith, the core tenet of the Christian faith, is that we get to be right with God, not by earning and doing good works. That doesn't make us right with God. We get right with God by trusting Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and we get given his goodness, his good deeds and that makes us right with God. That's how we, that's how we get right with God. That's how our, our sins get, get dealt with. That's how we get into heaven. Um, that's how our relationship is restored to God. But Jesus, he doesn't talk about that in this passage, not explicitly, um, which I thought was weird. I was like, oh, if this is Jesus' mission statement... And he doesn't talk about forgiving sins. I'm like, what's going on there? I don't know. I thought to myself, I was like, I hope I'm not preaching another gospel here because that would make me a heretic. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm just highlighting a different, a different element of it. Because the thing is about this passage in Isaiah, the year of Jubilee, they're actually all foreshadows. So they're, they're, they're symbols. They're, they are literal 
and, and God does have a heart for them. They're, they're real commands. They're things that Jesus is trying to bring, wants to bring, wants to partner with us bringing on earth as it is in heaven. But they're also symbols of things that are going to come. So, and what they're, so there's sort of like double meaning kind of thing, multiple layers of meaning. So what, what they're symbolising is what Jesus has done for us. So we come before God and we are not perfect. We come before a God who's holy and who's righteous. And, we come bef- and, we're, and we're humans, we're humanity, we're part of the race that has uh, done all that injustice that we talked about at the start. And, and, and we've all participated in it, we've all benefited from it, we've all directly done it, indirectly done it. And we've been doing that since, since creation. So as a, as a race of people, humanity, and as individuals, none of us can come to God and say, hey God, you should accept me because I'm really good. None of us can do that. And so Jesus comes to us in our, uh, in our state of poverty where we have no righteousness. He comes to us in our state of, of blindness where most of us don't even realise that we're full of sin. He comes to us in our state of captivity where we feel trapped by these, by these struggles. And some of these struggles are inner struggles, things that, that, we, that we do, impulses, actions. And then some of the struggles are, are sort of outside of us. They're societal struggles, but we sometimes benefit from them and then sometimes are hurt by them. So Jesus comes to all that and he preaches good news to us, good news to our poverty. He heals our blindness. He wants to set us free from the things that keep us captive. He wants to declare the year of jubilee over your life, where your debts are cancelled, where the things that God destined for you to have that maybe have been stolen away from the enemy, God wants to return them to you. That's good news. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to those two things? So those, those very real, that first layer, those very real commands about justice and that, that I'll call it a justice agenda that I think Jesus has and Jesus' offer of forgiveness of sin and restoration and reconciliation to the Father. How do we respond to those two things? Because throughout history... People have emphasised different things. And sometimes throughout history, people have just emphasised justice. All that matters is we just do good for the poor. I think we should do good for the poor, but that's not how we get right with God. And that's not everything about Christianity. That's, it's there, but it's not, it's not everything. It's an overemphasis or it's, it's missing something. Also, there have been other Christians who have talked about the forgiveness that Jesus offers has talked about his death and his resurrection, rightly so, but have constructed it in a way where for whatever reason, the end result is that people don't think about anyone else other than themselves and that their Christianity is only about them and God and that's it. If that is your Christianity... I just want to say, um, have a think about this. Because God, he loves you. 
and he loves you unconditionally and he wants to forgive you of your sins. He wants to make you right with him. He wants to heal you. He wants to set you free. But he wants to do that so that you can join with him and be that for the rest of the world. Offer that to the rest of the world. So there's, this two, there's these two parts to it. There's you getting freed, changed, transformed, filled up. But then you partnering with God as he does that for the rest of his children that he loves so dearly. So what does this look like? What does this look like, Charlie? It's easy to think about all this, but like, how do I do it? Well, I'm sorry if this sermon's been really complicated. Um, Sometimes the Bible's like a bit tricky to understand and even tricky to explain. But actually living this stuff out is actually quite simple. So all, all you have to do is think of entrees. Hands up who's been to a wedding. Okay, most people, good. I thought that would be the case. Hands up if you've had entrees, like those little snacky things at, a, at something. Yeah, they're really good. I love them. I love food. I love the sushi ones. Salmon avocado is probably my favourite little entree. Also chips. I love chips. Hope there's some chip lovers out there. Have we got chips tonight? Maybe not. Okay. I'll get some on the way home. Um, but we are, like, we are supposed to be entrees for the kingdom of heaven. Little foretastes of what life's like when God's in charge. So if you just think about that, if Jesus has come, if he's come to preach good news to the poor, set the captives free, introduce sinners to a loving, introduce sinners to a loving God who wants to forgive them and bless them and heal them and restore them, where to become little, little pieces of little sushi versions of that, little sushi roll, kingdom of God bringers. And so when people interact with us, the idea is that they get a taste of what life's like with God in their life. So if God's a God of love and a God of grace and a God of forgiveness, and you've experienced that, the idea is that you go out with God and that when people encounter you, they get a taste of that. They get a taste of love. They get a taste of grace. They get a taste of forgiveness. God's a generous God. He forgives people unconditionally who don't deserve it. So we, we become a taste of that. He, he pays our debts for us. Sometimes literally and, and definitely, most certainly, and predominantly spiritually, he pays our debts. So we become a taste of that. We become a little taste of that. We do radical things like give our money away. And I've been the recipient of that. And can I just say, it's pretty amazing when you're going along and you're just like, you know, I've got no idea how I'm going to get out of this debt or this financial problem. And God prompts some Christian to drop money in your bank account. You just, it's, it blows you away. It really does. For people who, God's a God who, who, lo- who loves the oppressed, who's, who's near the downtrodden, who's near the one who is hurt and wounded. And so he wants us to partner with him so that we can be a taste of that. And then when we do that, when we, when we be this little, this little taste of what the kingdom of heaven is like, it's a great segue into faith conversations. If you're someone who is passionate about seeing people come to faith in Jesus, this is a great starting point because when you are a little taste of what life's like under God, 
it, it's like, it just opens up, it just opens up chats. And you just have to simply say things like, if, if people question you, why are you doing that for? You just say, pretty simply, you say, oh, I just think God is on about that. And I just think this is, um, this is a taste of what life's like if God was in control of, of everything. And then they're like, oh, okay. And, and, and that, might, well, that might be, at that point, that might be all the conversation that you have. But it's just, it's just how you begin it, you know? And so it's not, it's not about, you know, just doing good things or, or just preaching. These things should be, should be married together. And I, I fully believe that, that if each and every Christian in the world, because there's lots of them, Toby and I were joking at the start of the service how many Catholics there are in the world. There's a lot of them. But there's a lot of Christian, other, other forms of Christians as well. If all of us started to just think about, okay, I'm just going to be a taste of what God's kingdom is like to each person that I meet in each of my little things that I do, I'm just going to receive from God and then I'm just going to be a little taste of what it's like like it actually would be world changing. It's actually already flipped the planet on its head once before. The early church started out with, with initially the 12 disciples and a, and, a, and a few women and a couple of other people scared running away from the Romans in about 30 AD. And, and now it's the largest religion in the world. And it got like that, not, not, from, not initially from, from conquering nations and that kind of stuff. Initially it got big because just... Hundreds of faithful Christians just were little tastes of the kingdom to their people. And they were just faithful to God and they just shared what, they, what they'd been given from him. They shared his grace, they shared his love and it, lit, it turned the Roman Empire upside down. The reason, and, and the Roman Empire adopted it as its religion. So it's, it's, not like, it's not like things can't change. It's not like people's lives can't change. It's not like societies can't change because they already have before and even since then it's happened there have been revivals recently um, Franklin Graham came to town I didn't go his grandfather when he came through Billy Graham thousands of people came to faith secular like social scientists were able to measure massive decreases in crime and poverty and corruption and and alcohol problems, all these kinds of things. It was nuts. I wasn't alive then, but I've read about it. I'm like, wow, that sounds crazy. God moves. He wants to move. He's going to move. He's just asking us to partner with him and be those little, little taster of the kingdom of heaven.